Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. We won. These two words, printed in page-sized letters, form the content of the cable which the CIA chief in Islamabad sent to Langley in February 1989. The Soviet 40th Red Army was leaving. Barely nine months later, the Berlin Wall came down. So what exactly did the United States win in Afghanistan in the 1980s, and how? With me to discuss this perhaps somewhat neglected chapter in the history of the Cold War is Bruce Rydell, author of What We Won, America's Secret War in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989. Bruce Rydell retired in 2006 after 30 years of service at the Central Intelligence Agency and is now a senior fellow and director of the Brookings Intelligence Project. He was a senior advisor on South Asia and the Middle East of four presidents and also served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for the Near East and South Asia at the Pentagon. He is the author of a number of historical monographs, just to name a few, Avoiding Armageddon, America, India and Pakistan to the Brink and Back, and JFK's Forgotten Crisis, Tibet, the CIA and the Sino-Indian War. So I'm delighted to have him on the show for the first time. Bruce, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So before we get into the, into the meat of the, uh, of the discussion of the book, I'd like to begin by briefly sketching out a couple of the important elements of the, the prehistory, so to speak, of the, of the events that we'll, we'll talk about today, just to, to, to give a timeline uh, for the listeners. So in, in 1893, the foreign secretary of what was then British India, a chap called Mortimer Durand, demarcated the border between... Afghanistan and what was then the Raj. And ever since then, the, that line has been known as the Durand Line. And this split the Pashtun community in two and cut Afghanistan off from the sea. In August 1919, the Treaty of Rawalpindi ended the Third Anglo-Afghan War and Afghanistan gained complete independence. In November 1933, the king was assassinated and succeeded by his son, Muhammad Zahir, who stayed in power for the next 40 years until 1973, when he in turn was overthrown in a coup staged by his cousin, uh, Mohammed Dawood Khan. Now at this stage, Pakistan uh, was in the Western camp. So the Soviet Union looks favorably upon uh, Afghanistan and starts training its army and, and its officer corps. So let's at this point introduce the, the Afghan communists into the picture. Could you tell us a bit about the, the origins of the Afghan Communist Party and how we get from 1973, when Mohammed Dawood Khan takes power, to the 1978 April Revolution, five years later? Yes. Well, one of the interesting things about Afghanistan's independence in 1919 is the first thing that the new Afghan government did was recognized the communist government in Moscow. Uh, that was highly unusual. Most of the world at that time was uh, distancing themselves, if not intervening against the communists. But the Afghans even then saw that Russia might be their long-term security buffer against the British. Mm -hmm. And over time, an Afghan Communist Party slowly developed it was marred from the start by severe factionalism. 
Um, the two major factions were called the, the banner and the flag. Uh, and they differed over uh, ideological interpretations that were, to put it mildly, um, highly complex. <laughs> As they tend to be, right? <laughs> right. And, and very difficult for outsiders to understand what is the argument about. Um, there was also some degree of urban-rural uh, differences between the factions. Um, this will become more important once they come close to power and once they're in power, because once they're in power, one faction or another is always trying to overthrow the other one, uh, usually using very violent, bloody means. Right. Yes, exactly. So in, in, in April 1978, the, the, the Afghan communists staged this coup, but actually it's, it's led by uh, a, the leader of one of the factions, right? the Kalk faction, uh, a chap called Nur Mohammed Taraki. Um, now, at that point, um, Moscow welcomes the coup, but tell us why that is, because initially it, it had had friendly relations with the Daoud regime too, right? Yes, they, uh, the Russians had had a considerable presence in Afghanistan for a long time. Uh, and uh, as you noted earlier, they trained uh, Afghan army officers in the Soviet Union, which is how they were able to recruit some of them uh, to join the Afghan Communist Party. Uh, they also uh, very cleverly played on the very important sectarian and ethnic divisions within Afghanistan, particularly going for uh, minority groups uh, who might be more sympathetic uh, to uh, change uh, from the uh, largest group, the Pashtuns. Mm -hmm. um, when the coup took place, uh, the Russians decided that they wanted to embrace the ideology of having an actual communist party running Afghanistan. Uh, this is a, a heady time remember, for the Soviet Union. Uh, the war in Vietnam had ended in the defeat of the United States. Um, mm -hmm. The fall of Laos and, China and Cambodia, um, Soviet uh, allies uh, to a certain degree. Um, the uh, Soviets had also benefited from changes in Africa, uh, including in uh, East Africa. Uh, they seem to be on the rise. And here was one more opportunity yeah, in 1978 to take another step forward uh, in the Cold War against the Americans. Mm -hmm. Right. So uh, it, it, just to say a few more words, perhaps, uh, about the coup, this happened in, in, in April 1978. So a certain faction within, within the, the army basically mutinies, storms the presidential palace, and kills. Daoud and something like 30 members of his family. They're, they're pretty ruthless. <laughs> uh, and right. Taraki becomes the, the, the prime minister. There's uh, another important person who will become more important later in the story, Hafizul Amin, his foreign minister. Um, and as you, as you said, soon thereafter, they start infighting. They basically start purging each other, right? Um, now, what... what what was the, 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 this government, this communist government's agenda? And, and how, did, how did it manage to alienate Afghan society so much and, and so quickly? Well, these were um, pure uh, communists. Uh, in that sense, they were atheists. 
Mm -hmm. Uh, Afghanistan is a very strongly uh, Islamic country. Uh, All Afghans regard themselves as probably Muslims first, uh, Pashtuns second, and Afghans third, uh, or different uh, ethnic group. Um, So by pushing an atheist uh, form of uh, life, uh, they were pushing against one of the rock strongholds of the Afghan identity. Uh, They also pushed for things that uh, we today rightly regard as uh, right, uh, women's equality, women's education. Um, The uh, Afghan society of the 1970s and perhaps the Afghan society of today uh, don't see it that way. Uh, Giving education to women uh, was a revolutionary idea in Afghanistan in the 1970s. Sure, yeah. Also, the uh, Afghan communists promoted the notion, uh, in theory at least, that all Afghan ethnic groups should be treated equally. Now, in practice, that was not always the case, but at least in theory, that was the case. Uh, And this alienated uh, the Pashtun uh, group uh, who felt that Afghanistan was their country uh, and that all these other ethnic groups were second-class citizens. So on a wide variety of fronts, this new Afghan communist government very quickly alienated large segments of the population, particularly in the rural areas. Rural areas saw um, this as an intrusion on an age-old lifestyle. Uh, the communists were more successful uh, in urban areas, but I wouldn't I wouldn't jump to the conclusion that the urban areas were communized. Uh, mm-hmm. There was also significant uh, uh, opposition in urban areas, but that's where the, the communists in general were, were better able to find support. Right, yeah, which makes sense because they were the m- more modern parts of the country, right? It, it's so interesting that, uh, as you mentioned, the fact that the the, the communist regime was, was also, you know, pushing for... for women's rights, etc. I think we sometimes forget that, you know, that, that women's rights is not, um, uh, as part of human rights, in, in, in a way, human rights more generally, was something that the Soviets um, believed in too. And, and in fact, it's one of the commonalities, I think, with the, between the Soviet experience in the 1980s and the American experience um, more recently. But we'll, we'll come to that um, at the end. So, um, as you say, by 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 the fall by the fall of 1978 already, so really within months of of the of the coup happening, the the communist regime has has lost control of large um, swaths of the country. Resistance is mounting. Um, in fact, in March of the following year, 1979, there's there's an uprising in in Herat in the in the west of the country, and some Soviet uh, advisors are, are are even killed. In September of 1979, something important happens, which is that um, Taraki, who uh, who had in the meantime fallen from power, goes and meets Brezhnev uh, in Moscow, and Brezhnev encourages him to remove his fellow communist, right, Amin. But Amin finds out about it first and and takes action, to put it mildly, and and has uh, Taraki first arrested um, and, and then killed. So. So this is at this point. Perhaps it's important to stress at this point. It's really it's it's a it's a fight within the 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 communist regime itself. Tell us tell us a little bit about the the Soviets at this point. Who are the the key decision makers um, in Moscow? 
Well, the number one decision maker is Brezhnev, mm -hmm. who uh, came into uh, power uh, replacing Nikita Khrushchev in October 1964. Uh, he was an elderly man when he assumed power in 1964. By 1979, uh, he's quite an old man. And we can, I, I think, safely say that his powers of uh, observation and analysis were not as sharp as they had once been. Right. And the, the Soviet leadership, uh, looking at Afghanistan, uh, saw that here was a place that had been brought into the uh, Soviet camp uh, by the um, Afghan Communist Party, but which was now faced with a major insurgency, um, which was viewed sympathetically by uh, Afghanistan's neighbor, uh, Pakistan. Mm -hmm. um, and the Afghan Communist Party was bitterly divided, violently divided into various factions, all of which looked like a formula for the collapse of a pro-Soviet Afghan governed communist party state in Afghanistan. The doctrine that the Soviets had lived under is that once you became a Soviet client state, whether it was Hungary in 1956 or Czechoslovakia in 1968, you couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. And you, and any attempt to leave would be suppressed by Russian troops, right. most famously in um, Hungary in 1956 with intense bloodshed. There was uh, very little thought in uh, Moscow in 1979 to, okay, if we do go in, what happens the day after? Mm -hmm. What are we going to do then? Um, the uh, Soviet intelligence chief, uh, Andropov, uh, may have been the, the most cautious of the bunch. Hmm, interesting. But all of them were basically um, very worried that Afghanistan was going to fall Islamist-oriented government. Uh, already in Iran, next door, uh, in 1978, we had the fall of the Shah and the mm -hmm. uh, arrival of the Islamic Republic headed by the Ayatollah Khomeini. As Americans, we naturally tend to focus on the uh, Ayatollah Khomeini's anti-American bias. Right. But uh, he actually also saw the Russians uh, and the Soviets as a great enemy. Um, in, in fact, in the, in the Iranian Revolution, there were three great enemies, America, Russia, uh, and Israel. Mm -hmm. So from the Soviet standpoint, here was a communist government falling apart on its southern border uh, where there are large uh, populations of Muslims, uh, Turkomans, Uzbeks, uh, all of whom the communist leadership in Moscow feared might become uh, radicalized by looking across their southern border and seeing what had happened in Iran and what was about to happen in Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's very interesting because, uh, as we'll 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 see later when we when we talk about the Carter administration, that was not the way in which the 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 Soviet decision to intervene was was initially interpreted. So that's that's important to to, to keep in mind. So 
um, as I said, in, in March 1979, there, there had been this uprising in Herat. Some Soviet advisors had, had even been killed. But at that point, Moscow um, was, had still decided not to act. But by December, things had changed. The situation had, had worsened. And on Christmas Eve, uh, December 24th, 1979, the Soviets deployed the 105th Guards Airborne Division to Kabul. And three days later, uh, basically a special forces uh, outfit storms the, the presidential palace and kills the, not, the, the communist leader, uh, Amin, and, and installs uh, a guy called Karmal, as, who, who, who was from a, from a different faction, as, as the leader. Um, so at this point, just to, again, clarify for the listeners, because it can get complicated, right? So the Soviets have intervened to replace one of their own, in a way, it, it, the, the head of a, of a communist regime, and replace them with another, uh, in, a, in a sense, puppet leader. Um, why does this not solve the problem for the Soviets? The, um, yes, the Soviet intervention uh, on Christmas Eve was very, very dramatic. Um, I can recall uh, being in the uh, uh, operations center of the CIA uh, as we began to get the reports of, of dozens Soviet aircraft, uh, in the end, hundreds of Soviet aircraft, uh, bringing in the paratroopers uh, and other special forces uh, that uh, replaced one communist with another communist. Um, it was very, very violent, but of course it didn't resolve uh, in any way. In fact, it made worse the underlying problem that the communists faced, which was the vast majority of Afghans saw communists as an anti-Islamic force supported by a foreign power. Now, not only had that foreign power given uh, support and training uh, to the Afghan Communist Party uh, and its military, uh, now they were actually on the ground and Afghanistan had been invaded by a uh, Russian communist army. This only increased the uh, uh, revolutionary sentiment among the Afghan people mm -hmm. uh, and their, their very fierce desire to see not just the communists out, but more importantly, get the Russians out. Right, yeah. Certainly at that, at that point, they must have felt that, as you say, they, their country was essentially a, becoming a puppet regime um, of, of the Soviets. Yes, they, they, were, they were an occupied country. Right. So the the 40th Red Army was was about a it ended up being about a hundred thousand uh, hundred thousand men and we'll we'll talk later about the the numbers because that 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 has has a bearing on the question of um uh, of the 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 tactics of the of the of the war but um let's talk a little bit now about about what with time became uh, the opposition obviously they they are mostly known as the the, the mujahideen. But there was there was never one overarching political authority. There were, there were always many groups. Um, in the book, you mostly focus on on two of them. So perhaps we could say a few words about them: Ahmed Shah Massoud on the one hand, and Jalaluddin Haqqani uh, on the other. Yes, the, the the Afghan Mujahideen were in some ways the uh, reflection of the Afghan communists. They were also divided. Um, mm -hmm. And the Mujahideen were even more divided on ethnic grounds uh, than the uh, communists had been. Uh, the largest ethnic group in Afghanistan are the Pashtuns, 
uh, and the Haqqanis emerged as the leading player um, among the uh, Pashtun insurgents. Uh, there were other players as well, uh, and there were divisions, but the Haqqanis were, were very much the largest uh, of the group. Uh, the um, Ahmed Shah Massoud, the famous lion of the Panjshir, uh, drew most of his support uh, from Tajiks, who predominate in the northeastern corner of uh, Afghanistan, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly in the uh, famous Panjshir Valley, right. uh, which became the scene for uh, endless battles between uh, Ahmed Shah Massoud's uh, Tajik resistance uh, and uh, the Soviet 40th Red Army. Um, the Soviets were able to recruit uh, some uh, ethnic groups over their side. Um, hmm, interesting. In the uh, Uzbek uh, community, for example, uh, they were quite successful in recruiting uh, Uzbeks um, led by a name, band named Dosta, mm-hmm. uh, who, who saw himself at this point uh, as a communist. Uh, and the uh, Soviets drew heavily upon uh, Dostam's uh, military forces uh, to assist them. Um, so we have a, on the ground here a, a very complex situation. Uh, right. yeah. And you could have uh, ceasefires from time to time between one Mujahideen group and the Soviets. Uh, you could even have clashes between various Mujahideen factions. And of course, turmoil within the Afghan Communist Party um, was subdued by the Soviet uh, invasion, but it never really went away 100%. Mm-hmm. Right. And now an- another important player in all of this, and one that on which you, you put a lot of focus uh, in the book, is Ziaul Haq, the, the Pakistani military dictator. Now, he made a name for himself in, in 19, first in 1971 when he was actually in Jordan um, helping the king there battle the, the, the Palestinians, who at that point um, were, were in Jordan. In July 1977, he's back in Pakistan. He overthrows the, the civilian uh, leader, Zulfikar Ali Bhutto. Tell us a little bit about, about him. What kind of a man was he? What kind of a state did he want um, Pakistan to, to be or to become? And, and what was his biggest fear when he saw the Soviet Union coming down into Afghanistan? Uh, Zia al-Huk was a true believer, a really strong Islamist. Um, he had, uh, uh, for example, uh, decorated his uh, quarters uh, in the, you know, where, he, where he lived uh, in uh, Pakistani, the military city of Rawalpundi, which is where the, the Pakistani army has its uh, top headquarters. He decorated his quarters with so many pictures of Mecca uh, and other holy religious sites that observers would come to his house and say, you don't have a home, you have a mosque. (laughs) Um, He was an ardent believer, and he saw in the uh, Afghan communists uh, the antithesis of everything he believed in. And of course, with the Russians uh, invading in 1979, he not only saw that, that Afghanistan was now uh, under the grip of an atheist uh, party, but he had great fear that the Soviets would at some time, sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, uh, invade Pakistan 
in order to get a direct outlet to the sea uh, from the Soviet Union through two client-controlled states, Afghanistan and Pakistan. Mm -hmm. Zia also had tremendous animus uh, for his neighbor to the east, the Indians, uh, which of course were Hindus, uh, and which had uh, defeated uh, Pakistan in 1971 in a disastrous war uh, for the Pakistani army. It it ended up surrendering um, what was then East Pakistan uh, and almost close to 100,000 Pakistani soldiers. Uh, to the Indians. So Zia saw himself very much under threat, um, and he resolved quite early on that the best solution to the problem of uh, the Soviet threat was to have them bogged down in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. But he was also astute enough to realize that if you push the Soviet bear too much, you might just provoke that invasion of Pakistan you feared. So the support for the Afghan Mujahideen had to be very measured, to be just enough to make the situation in Afghanistan boil, but not so much as to make it boil over the top and lead to a Soviet invasion of Pakistan itself. Right, yeah. Yes, you mentioned that phrase several times in the book, precisely that... that he wanted the the pot to, to to boil just enough, but but not too much, right? And 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 we for, we perhaps now now that you know we're we're accustomed to living in a world in which Pakistan and India both have nuclear weapons, we forget that at this time, you know, the fear of a total dismemberment of of Pakistan was not totally irrational or or crazy, right? As you mentioned, I mean, the Pakistani Pakistani in a sense had been dismembered in 1971 when it lost its eastern half, so so that was something that. Um, you know, they, they could uh, certainly fear. Um, okay, so now we have the main ingredients. We have the, 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 the Soviet invasion, the, the, the beginnings of an opposition with the Mujahideen, and someone in Pakistan who is more than happy to create trouble um, for the Soviets. Let's introduce at this point the, the Americans. So the, the, at this point, of course, Carter is, uh, is, is in power. Um, what was and and you lived this personally, so I, I'd be curious to see to hear what you know how how you experienced this. Um, what was Carter's relationship with with Zia like um, before the the Soviet intervention? And then how do how do Carter and Brzezinski uh, interpret this this Soviet move? Carter's relationship with Zia and in general America's relationship with Pakistan in 1979 were terrible. Uh, when the um, uh, Holy Mosque in Mecca was seized by uh, uh, extreme uh, Islamists uh, that year. Um, the Iranians had also encouraged the notion that the Americans were behind it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that produced a mob in Islamabad that sacked the American embassy. Uh, and Carter uh, desperately tried to get Zia to send troops uh, to do something to save the American diplomats who were in the embassy. Uh, <clears throat> but the Pakistanis kept answering his request by saying, uh, sorry, Zia's not available right now. Yeah, <laughs> he'll call you back later. Yeah, right. He's not available. He's out biking. Um, <laughs> uh, so this left a, a very uh, a nasty uh, taste in Carter's mouth. Mm-hmm. But when the Soviets went in, uh, Carter very quickly, with Brzezinski, a fashion strategy, which in the end would be the winning strategy 
uh, for the West in Afghanistan, which was to put together a coalition uh, of Pakistan, first and foremost, uh, but also Saudi Arabia. And the United States and the Saudis uh, would give money uh, to the Pakistanis, uh, and the Pakistanis would support the Afghan Mujahideen. In other words, we would, um, in essence, hire the ISI to do all the dirty work. Right. Americans did not fight in Afghanistan in the 1980s. Uh, aside from a few photo ops along the border, American CIA officers never went into Afghanistan. Uh, what we basically did was provide a check uh, and uh, ensure that the Saudis provided a matching check uh, that funded the war. Uh, as, as Bob Gates, uh, a later a director of the CIA, would say, we were basically the um, financiers, mm -hmm. uh, the quartermaster uh, of this entire war. Uh, we didn't get our hands dirty. Uh, and in many ways, this was great because it allowed the U.S. to have some degree of plausible deniability that we weren't directly involved. Mm -hmm. um, plausible, but not really true, of course. Right. Uh, and we got the Pakistanis to take all the risks. And that also meant that Zia was the ultimate strategist. Within two weeks after the Soviet invasion, uh, Carter had basically essentially nailed down this whole strategy and had gotten the uh, Pakistanis and the Saudis uh, to agree to it. Uh, the amount of money that the U.S. put into this initially was fairly modest. Uh, by the end of the war, um, the American contribution was less than $3 billion. Mm -hmm. uh, according to a, a new book by the then head of Saudi intelligence, Prince Turki al-Faisal, uh, the United States and, and the Saudis provided about $2.7 billion each over the course of the war to the ISI to fight the, um, to fight the Russians. But when you think about it in terms of uh, the American uh, budget, particularly the defense budget, uh, $3 billion is, is a rounding error. It's peanuts, yeah. <laughs> it's nothing. It's, it's, yeah. it's nothing for most... Uh, uh, American defense outlays. Right. Uh, certainly, the, the wars in in Vietnam, Iraq, and Afghanistan cost far more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, for this relatively small amount of money, and uh, achieved beyond our imaginings. Uh, Carter, it should be remembered, and the CIA in the in the last years of the Carter administration, the first years of the Reagan administration, never presumed that they would actually defeat the Russians and drive them out of the country. Right. The concept was always that we would bog them down in a Vietnam-style quagmire. Uh, and for many Americans in the 1980s, this was sweet revenge for what had happened to us in Vietnam. Right. The, the notion that the Mujahideen could become so powerful that they could defeat the Soviet 40th Red Army uh, was a fantasy that very, very few people believed in until well into the second Reagan uh, administration, and, and and we'll come to that. Yes, and 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 in fact, that that brings us nicely to the to the question of what the war was like, right? Because as you say, I mean, we had the the, the an entire Soviet army, which is a you know it, it's it's a it's a mechanized force. You know, this is a serious professional army up against a group of 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 ragtag groups but nonetheless they were they ended up being quite effective tell us a little bit about 
what precisely what the war was like what kind of a war was it how, how was it fought most of the war was fought in the rural areas which of course in afghanistan uh, is <laughs> is a lot right <laughs> right yeah uh, afghanistan is roughly the size of texas um but it's a very mountainous uh very rugged terrain uh most afghans back at this point in the 1980s never left the valley that they were born in uh, they never went over the mountains to the other side. Uh, certainly most Afghan women uh, never left the, uh, the village uh, that they had been born in. Right. So this was a war fought uh, in classic guerrilla style. Um, the big Soviet advantage, of course, was that they had a monopoly on air power. Um, mm -hmm. The had, had no air force. Uh, uh, they were a, a classic a collection of guerrilla bands. Uh, so the Soviet monopoly on air power uh, was the one big firepower advantage that they had. It also allowed them to move people around the country uh, using helicopters uh, and transport aircraft. Uh, the Soviets also, right from the beginning, uh, built an Afghan communist air force uh, mm -hmm. that had hundreds of uh, fixed wing and rotary wing uh, aircraft, uh, helicopters and fighters. Um, often it was uh, Afghan communist pilots uh, who carried out some of the worst uh, human rights violations, shooting up villages and things. Right. Um, but it was, a, in the end, a very local war. Uh, there's no Battle of Gettysburg here. There's no yeah. <laughs> uh, Battle of the Bulge. Um, and, the uh which is what the soviets were looking for right in a way right that would that would have suited them yes uh, the soviets wanted a decisive battle and the, and the, and the afghans and the pakistanis who were advising them, uh did not want a decisive battle they wanted uh as we said earlier for the, the pot to boil but not to boil over mm-hmm so a, a crucial turning point then in the war is around 1985-86 when, when Zia decides to escalate the war. And at this point, he actually he becomes convinced that it, it would be possible to go for an, for an all-out victory against the Soviets in Afghanistan. Um, why, what, what makes him change his mind? And how does the, the Reagan administration, which at that point is in its uh, second term, uh, how does the Reagan administration then react to this demarche by, by Zia? Um, Zia began to see that uh, the Mujahideen uh, were uh, more or more capable. Uh, and Zia began to uh, actively uh, turn up the heat, including, uh, by the way, encouraging the Mujahideen to cross into the Soviet Union itself and carry out raids there. Yeah, that, that, that's incredibly daring, right? <laughs> it is very, very daring. Um, by this point, I think Zia had got the measure of his Russian adversary, and he realized that the, that the Russian leadership were uh, old men uh, who were not as uh, were not gamblers, um, and that uh, the chance of a Soviet invasion of, of Pakistan had really receded. Um, he also was uh, more and more confident in American support. Um, mm -hmm. he, he had seen that. First Carter and then Reagan uh, had generally delivered 
uh, on the promises that they made to him. So with this increasing confidence, he decided that uh, we should we should ramp up the heat, and he approved the delivery of stingers. Uh, the key man on the American side was the then director of Central Intelligence, uh, Bill Casey. Uh, Bill Casey was a, a, a lifelong uh, Republican. Uh, he had been Ronald Reagan's campaign manager uh, in the 1980 campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. He had served in the Office of Strategic Services in World War II, uh, so he had practical, real, on-the-ground experience as an intelligence officer. Uh, and he was convinced uh, that the Russians were responsible for almost all of the world's problems. And here he saw the opportunity to deliver more than Vietnam, uh, to deliver the, a coup de grace uh, to the Soviet Union. All right. And, and the, stingers, the stingers became emblematic in a way of the war, right? That's often how the war is, is remembered. Right. How, how decisive were they, in your view? Uh, they were important, but I don't think they were by themselves decisive. I think uh, mm-hmm. uh, the stinger has gotten a little bit more uh, uh, credit uh, than it deserves. It was really a, a combination of, of other things, including the amount of money that was going to the Pakistanis to support the Mujahideen uh, went up dramatically uh, in the second uh, Reagan administration. Uh, what had been you know, hundreds of millions of dollars now became a uh, quarter of a billion dollars and, and, and upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should also say that it wasn't just the money that the uh, American CIA and the Saudi intelligence services were giving. Uh, the Saudis also raised lots and lots of money, billions of dollars in subscriptions from Saudis, uh, Saudi businessmen, Saudi clerics, uh, Saudi royals. Um, over $4 billion was raised in the what we call the private sector of Saudi Arabia during the war. And the man who was in charge of that was uh, then governor of Riyadh and today king of Saudi Arabia, Salman. Uh, who was extraordinarily good at fundraising. Uh, all of this money now in, in the late 1980s, with the Stinger, with uh, more and more experience in combat-effective Mujahideen groups, uh, the tide uh, significantly turned. Uh, and at this point, the Russians decided uh, it was time to go. Yes, indeed. And, and as we approach the 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 end of the war there there has been of course a a change of the guard in in moscow itself right gorbachev has, has come to power in december of 1987 he publicly announced that the soviets would leave within uh, a 12 month period um interestingly at that point he's still reluctant to to disappoint india right which is uh, with which the soviet union had a very strong um relationship but nonetheless in in april of 1988 the Geneva Accords are signed, and a UN team um, oversees the the withdrawal of Soviet forces. Um, how does the how does the the end play itself out? The withdrawal is relatively relatively peaceful, as it were, um, partly because the Soviets, if I understood correctly, made a bunch of deals um, as they were um, retreating. But what is the what does the aftermath of the war look like? Yes, the, the Soviet withdrawal was um, more or less negotiated between the Mujahideen and their uh, Pakistan and Saudi allies uh, and the Soviets so that uh, it would not be a chaotic 
uh, withdrawal, uh, unlike what happened to us. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, the, the, the planning for getting out was was much better handled uh, by the Russians in the late 1980s. Mm -hmm. The war goes on. Uh, the universal presumption of everyone was that once the Russians left, the Afghan Communist Party and the Afghan Communist Army would collapse, but it didn't. Uh, the Soviets continued to provide um, weapons and ammunition, uh, no troops, uh, but they continued to fund the Afghan Communists, which was very important. Mm -hmm. um, and it turned out that substantial parts of Afghanistan, again, particularly urban areas like Kabul, did not want to be run by the Taliban. Uh, and and a, a, um, a generation of Afghans had grown up uh, living in a society in which uh, men and women were equal, uh, where women could uh, get an education, uh, where uh, elements of modernity existed. Uh, and they looked at the Taliban uh, and their Pakistani supporters and said, we don't want to go back to some kind of medieval theocracy. And they were willing to fight very hard uh, for uh, years against uh, the Mujahideen taking over. Um, the United States at this point uh, probably made a mistake. Um, we continued to fund the Mujahideen. Uh, we really had achieved our purpose. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it was time uh, for looking for a political solution to the war. But this covert action program was by this point uh, largely on autopilot. Nobody was questioning uh, should we continue to support uh, the Mujahideen? And um, so the war lingers on uh, for another couple of years. Yes, and, and uh, indeed. And then eventually, as you said, the, the, the Afghan communist regime survives for, for a couple more years. There are some leftover issues, so to speak, right? There's some excess stingers um, yes. flying around and the CIA, the CIA ends up buying them, buying them back. The ISI, uh, the Pakistani ISI, continues to back the Taliban. And eventually, of course, uh, as we know, there, there's essentially a civil war and then the, the, the Taliban come to power. Now, as we, as we approach the end of, uh, of our conversation today, uh, I'd like to ask you about something you mentioned in the introduction, which, which is that this was, in fact, one of the most successful, if not the most successful covert operation um, in, in, in U.S. history. And yet, as you, as you point out in the introduction, there hasn't been that much um, written on it. Uh, there, are, there are a couple of academic monographs. There's um, Steve Cole's book, Ghost Wars. Um, and then there's a book which then was also made into a movie, um, Charlie Wilson's War. But ne neither one of these really focuses on the war itself, and, and, and they both overplay certain aspects um, at the expense of others. What do you think explains this um, this neglect or this relative neglect of, of this important chapter in, in the final stages of the Cold War? Well, uh, part of it is, of course, that when uh, Jimmy Carter uh, and Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote their memoirs uh, in the 1980s um, and published the first you know, direct accounts of what they had done, uh, the war was still a classified covert operation. So there's very little... In, in, in their memoirs. Um, the head of the CIA, uh, Stansfield Turner, uh, produced a book which barely even discusses Afghanistan. Uh, so the, the, the key American players um, never wrote about it. 
Charlie Wilson, uh, for whom the book and the movie uh, talked about it a lot, and of course greatly right. uh, played up his role. Uh, he 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 had a role, but this was not Charlie Wilson's war. Yeah, <laughs> it's a misnomer, right? <laughs> it's a misnomer. Um, and then I think uh, by the time we got to the 1990s, uh, interest in Afghanistan and the United States generally receded across the board. Uh, it was, it's a long way away. Uh, very few Americans had ever been there. Um, there were no Afghan war veterans groups. Um, uh, the CIA did award medals to some of the officers who were involved, but it was not because they had engaged in combat in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. So you had a, a pretty small um, repository of information about this, uh, and it had been a covert war. Uh, there were some press accounts, uh, some media had followed it, um, but it all got quickly lost <laughs> in, the, in the 1990s by events, the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, the collapse of the Soviet Union, the, you know, the end of the Berlin Wall. Right. And um, it was only really after uh, 9-11 and the rise of al-Qaeda uh, that people began looking back to the Afghan war era uh, and saying, you know, what had happened. And then often with the judgment that our support for the Mujahideen had somehow been responsible for the creation of al-Qaeda. Uh, which, of course, it was not responsible for the creation of Al-Qaeda. That's a, a separate phenomenon um, right. that came uh, much later. Um, much later and from outside, right? And from outside. Uh, Al-Qaeda was, was not an Afghan movement. Right. It, it was an Arab movement that um, centered around the very charismatic uh, figure of uh, Osama bin Laden. Um, Right. And yes, it's, it's and Jimmy Carter has never gotten the credit that he really deserves for developing the strategy, which at the end of the day uh, led to the fall of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the liberation of at least Eastern Europe. Yes, the, bo- the book um, really places him nicely back at the center uh, of, of the story. Um, my final, my final question to you, Bruce, is is precisely about the the American experience, which, as we know, ended just uh, some months some months ago. At the end of the book, you you list a number of lessons that can be drawn from from the success of this uh, covert operation in Afghanistan in the 1980s, as well as some some mistake that mistakes that the the Soviets made. And what struck me were the similarities, right? And, and I'd like to ask you if you if you agree with this with this analysis as it were um because it seems to me that the the americans after 9-11 ended up making many of this many of the uh, the same mistakes or very similar mistakes that that the soviets had made so just just to sketch out a few for the listeners um the united states did not avoid mission creep right the original goal was to eradicate the al-qaeda presence in afghanistan and prevent the resurgence of international terrorism but this eventually, and perhaps inevitably, but nonetheless, it morphed into creating uh, an entire nation state and really changing the, the, the fabric of, of Afghan society. Very much so. Uh, the United States did not fight with, uh, with sufficient men and resources. The Soviets did not, uh, did not send enough men. 100,000 was nowhere near enough. And arguably, the United States did not either. Um, the Soviets took too long to, to understand how, that they were fighting a... Uh, 
an insurgency that they had to fight it as a counterinsurgency campaign. Um, is is all of that correct? First of all, in your view, and and secondly, if it is, if it is, what what does that say about the the ability of the the capacity for institutional learning in the military and among the policymaking elite? Because after all, if we again, if we look at the timeline, February nineteen eighty nine, the Soviets leave, the Americans are in Afghanistan only twelve years later. Right. Uh, well, very rarely in war. Uh, you get to fight the same war twice in one generation. Right. <laughs> in Afghanistan, essentially, we've done that. Only what we've done is flipped what side we were on. Um, in the 1980s, we backed the Pakistanis against a um, communist government uh, supported by the Soviets. Mm -hmm. uh, in the 20 years that we fought there after 9-11, uh, we were essentially trying to prop up a modern-leaning uh, government against an insurgency supported by the Pakistanis. Right. Uh, and I think the one big lesson of both wars is that as long as the insurgents have a safe haven and sanctuary and support in Pakistan, it's impossible to defeat them. You can fight them to a um, stalemate. And I would argue that we had essentially achieved that in Afghanistan uh, by 2005 and six. We had created a stalemate, mm -hmm. um, but we were no, we were nowhere near uh, the verge of victory, and neither were the Russians uh, in the 1980s. And you're right; there's a lot of similarities, including the fact that, uh, like the Russians, we turned over commanders in Afghanistan almost on an annual basis. Mm, which yeah. meant that there wasn't that institutional uh, body of knowledge about what was going on. And the one last thing I would say, it is very striking to me how little serious work we did on who were the Taliban. Um, mm -hmm. There's virtually no book in the United States uh, by a, an academic or a former practitioner about who, were, who, were, who are the Taliban. Um, what do they want, right? <laughs> what, what do they want? Who, who's in charge? Uh, who was Mullah Omar? Um, and how is it that he was dead for over a year before we found out that he was dead? Yeah, <laughs> that would seem to be pretty important, right? <laughs> right. That would seem to be a piece of data you would really want to know. Yeah. Um, we still don't really know where he died. Um, when you think about the amount of research and analysis that the U.S. government and the academic world poured into studying the Soviet Union. It's really dramatic how little effort we put into studying uh, a, a, an, a, an army, the Taliban, that we've ended up fighting for 20 years and ended up losing to. Right, yes. And that's the thing, right? I mean, in, in the end, one, one, one could argue that just as the American army, obviously, the American armed forces in general, could not possibly be defeated in the conventional sense of that term, uh, in Afghanistan, the Soviets also could not be defeated in, in in the sense of a pitched battle, right? But but it's a question of of the will to fight, right? That is also a part of war. War is an extension of of uh, of, of the the political power of a state, and to the extent that the state loses the will to fight, uh, effectively the other side the other side ha has won. So um, and another curious similarity I thought was that the 
You mentioned in the book that the, the Soviet leadership probably was not getting the best intelligence, also because there was a certain institutional uh, tendency to not report bad news up the chain of command, right? Um, but it, similarly, I mean, maybe, you know, the, the U.S. Army did not, did not have the same problems in that sense. But nonetheless, the, the intelligence assessments about both the morale in the Afghan National Army and supporting the population uh, at large for the, for the Kabul regime seems to me we're always way too optimistic. So there was also that, that angle. Yes. And, and in, in this case, the, um, the, the CIA and the American intelligence community is not supposed to spy on the American army. Uh, and the American army was building the Afghan army. And here there was a natural tendency uh, to report you know, progress. Uh, every year, a new, new commander would come in and he would say, uh, the Afghan army has improved substantially over the year I was here. There are X number more soldiers. Right. Um, and that tended to be uh, overly optimistic. Even that, though, uh, there, were, there were plenty of skeptics about the uh, strength of the Afghan army. And of course, one of the critical decisions that the Biden is that it not only withdrew the American and NATO combat forces from Afghanistan, who withdrew the American and other foreign contractors who did all the important work of maintaining the Afghan Air Force, mm -hmm. of helping uh, maintain the, the payroll system. Uh, and when all those people left, uh, the Afghan military essentially began to collapse. Uh, and once the collapse began, uh, it became a race for the race for and the Pakistanis. Uh, they did a very, very good job of uh, preparing for the uh, withdrawal to turn to chaos very, very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. In that sense, they had learned uh, lessons from the 1989 departure of the Soviets, uh, and there was no prolonged post-American withdrawal uh, Kabul government like there had been. Uh, when the Soviets left the communists and they hang on for another couple of years. Indeed, yes. Well, uh, it's, uh, it's been a really fascinating discussion. Uh, unfortunately, we, we have to wrap things up there. The, the book is What We Won, America's Secret War in Afghanistan, 1979 to 1989. The author is Bruce Rydell. Bruce, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, so long. <laughs>